Hello, and welcome to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you're joining us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Stauffenbaugh with an encouraging word titled, The Heart Motives of Jesus. Praise the Lord. It's a delight to be with each one of you today. I love you. God bless you. Would you say a prayer with me? Father, we want you to be glorified in this message today. We want you to really speak to us. I pray you'd take me over and speak to us. Use me, and then I pray you'll make it real clear to every listener. Put your angels by them to help them receive and retain your word. Then coach us, Holy Spirit, the rest of our lives that we might apply this fully and be changed into the image of Jesus. For that, we vow to give you the glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm speaking on the heart motives of Jesus. Now, I first learned about this when I was uh, 19 or 20. It was my second year of Bible college. But ever after that... That has been the focus and quest of my entire life. That's what I think about all day long, all night long. It's this uh, constant beating of my heart is a desire to bring glory to God. Now, that was the heart motive, the main heart motive of Jesus. There's two other motives I'll speak about. And Jesus faced the biggest problem in the world, which was the sins of the whole human race. He overcame that. He accomplished the greatest achievement in the history of the world by becoming the sin offering that paid off the redemption price for all of mankind. He opened the way for everyone to have forgiveness and eternal life. And he overcame more obstacles than anyone ever overcame because all the forces of darkness had combined uh, to take down the Son of God. I believe they came from every continent to Jerusalem to oppose him. Now, through all that, Jesus was very motivated and his motives were very pure and very wonderful. Now, you might wonder, well, what good would it do me if I understood the heart motives of Jesus? Well, the idea would be for you to get the same heart motives because that would mean that you could conquer your biggest problems, fulfill your God-given destiny, accomplish all the God-ordained works that he ever created you to do, and overcome all the obstacles that work so hard to prevent all that. Now, through all the trials that Jesus endured, he remained without sin. And purity begins in the heart. If you had a target, uh, and it was a target of purity, the bullseye of that target would be purity of motives. Next, maybe the next ring would be purity of speech. And maybe the next ring would be sexual purity, and then financial purity. But the bullseye, if you get purity of motive, it brings purity to all the rest of your life. Now, with purity comes power, spiritual power. All right? And then uh, answered prayers are, you know, God weighs the motives of the heart. The Bible says if you ask, you don't have because you don't ask. And then when you ask, you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives. But the motives of Jesus' heart always get their prayers answered. All right, so you might be saying, you know, in, the, in this current crisis that our nation is in, you might say, what I really need now is money. That's what I need. Or you might say, well, I really need safety. Or I really need a job. Or I really need a babysitter. Or I would sure like to have a cabin in the mountains well-stocked that I could just escape to. Or perhaps you're thinking, you know, what I really need is more energy or more healing or more hope. Well, <clears throat> I want to be a good friend to you. And I would suggest to you that if your heart was filled with the heart motives of Jesus Christ, all those other things you need would be added to you. Now, we're used to hearing the scripture where Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Remember, he said the, the heathens are always worried about what will we eat, what will we drink and all this stuff. And he said, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God will add 
all those things to you. Well, now, how do you seek the righteousness of God's? You might say, well, geez, I really don't know how to seek it. One of the most practical ways to seek first his righteousness is to ask God to give you the heart motives of Jesus. That's really the essence of having his righteousness fleshed out in your life. Everything flows from the heart, all right? Everything flows from heart motivation. Now, my first point is that there are three primary motivations in the heart of Christ. And the first is to bring glory to the Father. And so just before the cross and the crucifixion and all that, uh, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. All right, now notice that is the motive that got Jesus through the cross experience to make the greatest achievement in the world, overcome the greatest obstacles in the world. Now, secondly, is the motivation of love for people, even sinners. And in 1 John 3, 16, it says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. So Jesus was motivated by tremendous love for the Father, but also tremendous love for people, no matter how goofy and messed up they are. And then thirdly, he was motivated by a hatred of evil. 1 John 3, 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So, you see, we could say that he was motivated by love for the Father, love for people, and hatred of evil. Now, think of what your life would be like if you were motivated and there wasn't selfish motivation you weren't motivated just by human anger and self-pity and bitterness or... Wow. Let's go on to my second point here. <laughs> Through Christ, we can receive more than forgiveness in heaven. Now, Jesus was and is God in human form. And so Paul wrote, For in him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. And uh, God explained to me one time that he put all the sins of the world on one side of a scale of justice, but just put the goodness of Jesus on the other side. And because Jesus is God in human form, he had infinite goodness, and that outweighed the sins of the whole human race. So our salvation is bought with an infinite sacrifice. And that means you have infinite value. One time I read about a Picasso painting that sold for $42 million. And, you know, I thought it was an ugly painting. I wouldn't have given 50 cents for it. But the painting wouldn't have to feel uh, diminished by my opinion. That painting could say, I don't care what Wes would pay for me, I am a $42 million painting because the one who purchased me has established my worth. Well, now the devil will tell you you're not worth a plug nickel, but Jesus has established your worth. He paid an infinite price for you, which means you have infinite value. Now, I was reading a book by Pastor Jim Simbala, who for many years pastored Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. And he told the story uh, how he met uh, the serial killer son of Sam. That guy is named David Berkowitz. But uh, David Berkowitz was saved in prison. Now, he was the guy that terrorized New York for several years. He killed, uh, he'd just walk around and shoot people. And uh, he's killed six and wounded seven. And he was deep into the occult. He was so messed up that he thought the devil was telling him to kill people when a, when a dog would bark. He thought the devil was speaking to the dog. Well, here's one messed up guy 
But then in prison, somebody told him about Jesus, and he received forgiveness, and he's been a humble servant of Christ there in prison now for many years. He'll never get out of prison, but he understands that that's his field of ministry. And if you went on uh, YouTube and uh, Googled Son of Sam or David Berkowitz, you'd probably come uh, find some interviews where he's talking to people, and he is the sweetest guy. He's so changed. Now... You know, Jesus wants to forgive us, and he wants to get us to heaven, save us from hell. But he really, God really wants to make us like Jesus, see? He doesn't just want to save you from hell. He wants to save you unto himself, into his own heart, so you can endure his fiery, holy presence. And you can do that if you're like Jesus. And so in Romans uh, 8, you know, 28, we always quote, for God causes, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called in, according to his purpose. But the next verse we need to also memorize, and that is for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So when you become a Christian, what God wants to do is not sort of kind of make you like Jesus. He wants to make you just like Jesus. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ. God wants us to speak the truth in love, grow up spiritually until we're just like Jesus. Now, if we're Christ-like in our motivations, we'll have Christ-like victories, Christ-like results in prayer, and all that we need will be added to us because we wanted his righteousness fleshed out in our daily lives and we sought that first as our first priority in life. And God really does know how to add all those things to you regardless of your situation. If you'll first seek his righteousness and his kingdom, and one of the best ways I know to seek first his righteousness is to ask God to fill your heart with the motivations of Jesus Christ. Now, when I first volunteered to be a bus captain, it was the fall of 1972, and you'd have to, you know, visit at least uh, one hour to get 10 kids on your bus. So if you wanted 50 kids, you had to take five hours out of your Saturday plus your driving time. And so sometimes I didn't feel like uh, doing my bus route. It might be raining hard or that maybe there was a big sports events on TV or in one case it was deer season. And... Uh, so I'd say, Lord, I don't feel like doing the bus route. What do you feel like? And I can tell you when I prayed that prayer, he always felt like doing the bus route. And so then I'd say, well, let me feel what you feel. Now, basically, I was saying I want to be motivated with what motivates you. And I'd like you to put that in me. And anybody can pray that kind of prayer. That is a life-transforming prayer. And, of course, I always did the bus route, and that got me into full-time ministry, and, and uh, I've been enjoying ministry ever since, over 47 years. Now, my third point, we need to understand the significance of this current crisis. At the time of this recording, we're in the lockdown of the coronavirus crisis, and uh, it's uh, 2020. So, you know, it's 48 years, almost 48 years since that time when I first started praying, let me feel what you feel. Now, I want to tell you what I perceive as the significance of this mass uh, pandemic, worldwide pandemic. And uh, so 
uh, and this big shutdown that has shut down all the churches, at least temporarily. I believe that God is setting up the world for a massive worldwide revival. And for however long the church is not allowed to meet together, we should be praying and getting right with God. And we need to be spiritually prepared so that when the gate is opened, we can immediately go out into the world with a new anointing filled with the character virtues of Jesus and participate in the greatest harvest of souls in the history of the human race. Now, for myself, I sense that during this time, I'm supposed to prepare a teacher's guide and a student workbook for my new book, Good and Faithful Servant, A Trumpet Call to Return to Spiritual Leadership. I believe I'm also supposed to write a book about Christ's delivering power uh, from demons. Not a book about demons, but a book about the greater one and how to live free from sin and oppression. And I believe I'm supposed to write two new salvation tracks. But through all of that, I feel a spiritual urgency to get ready. Now, I'm going to read Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, and I think this is really appropriate to our time. So in the Amplified Translation, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant, proud, self-righteous, haughty, and every evildoer shall be stubble. And the day that's coming shall set them on fire, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, remember, when a forest fire burns, it typically is very hot, but it will only burn the trunks and the branches. It won't burn the roots. However, if a fire is hot enough to burn all the trunk and the branches and the roots, it's a really hot fire. So when he says the day that's coming will set them on fire, it'll leave them neither root nor branch, that's a heavy-duty day of judgment. And then he continues, but for you who fear my name with awe-filled reverence, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forward and leap joyfully like calves released from the stall. And you will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that this pandemic is the exact fulfillment of these scriptures, but I believe that the principles are the same. And I want you to notice that after a terrible time of judgment, there was going to be a wave of healing released. What does it mean, calves released from the stall? Well, I grew up on a ranch, so I've seen that. You can have a calf penned up in a pen, and then if you open the gate and they get out, they're so happy, they might jump and buck around like a rodeo animal coming out of the chute. And sometimes... Uh, you can have them not in a corral, but in a chute. And when you open uh, the, the gate there, they go jumping and bucking and so glad to get out. Now, I believe that God is going to open a gate for the body of Christ and send a great outpouring of his spirit. And the evil that holds so much of the world in bondage will be trampled beneath our feet, so to speak. Now, in Psalms 91, 13, it says, You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And so when it says the wicked will be ashes under the soles of your feet, well, I don't know how much of that is figurative and poetic. Uh, we'll just walk in victory and, uh, and defeat evil. Now, the calves that go leaping for joy, uh, figuratively speaking, are the people 
Well, the calves that do that are the ones that want to get out. They're the ones looking for release. So in the same way, we should be expecting God to open new doors and pour out new anointing and new miracles and be expecting good things. We want to be very careful that we don't get to uh, just expecting terrible, you know, poverty and disaster and one bad thing after another. God's people need to expect the son of righteousness to rise with healing in his wings and new joy and new anointing and new victories. So God is calling us to get ready and to live in a holy expectation. And then when we're released, we should go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and finally complete that great commission. That's what Jesus told us to do. Take the gospel to the ends of the world, to everybody. And we've never got that completely done in all these years. But Jesus is going to return, and that must be done, I believe, before he returns. And then, as we're having that great worldwide revival, we should joyfully be expecting the return of Jesus Christ. Now, my fourth point, let's look directly at Christ's motive to glorify the Father. See, there's many verses about this, especially in the Gospel of John. So I first saw this in John chapter 17. It's not the first reference, uh, but it's the one that God got my attention with. So I'll read it. Jesus, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Now, this was right before the cross, all right, just before the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began." See, Jesus wasn't just a man. He's God in human form. The Bible says the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's Gospel, chapter 1. Now, when uh, he said, uh, glorify me, you know, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, I, I spoke up and said to God, he's asking for the glory. Isn't that wrong? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me, read it again. Now, when I read it again, I saw the motive behind the prayer. And Jesus said, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So I can't bring you any more glory down here. Uh, so now I'm asking for a higher heavenly platform so that from there I might bring you even more glory. Now, I really got that. That went deep into my heart that Jesus was asking for the glory of glorifying God. And uh, from that moment on, God began to compare my heart motive to the heart motive of Jesus. And every time that I sensed that my motivation was to get praise from men, you know, then I'd repent. And I'd keep telling God, oh, use me to bring you glory. Now, that has permeated my whole life. But then, you know, the Lord began to show me other places where Jesus talked about this. So let's go over those. In John chapter 5, 41 and 43, Jesus said, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, 
you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now that means that Jesus lived for the approval of his Father and not the approval and praise of men. See, God will glorify us, but we have to concentrate on glorifying him, and if we do, he will glorify us with Jesus. But we don't want to take glory from people. We must avoid that at all costs. And now Jesus said in John 8, 54, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. <clears throat> so if we glorify ourselves, it means nothing. We must live for God's approval. Now, just before the Garden of Gethsemane, I'll quote this verse again. Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. I call that the golden motive. And that held Jesus on course. His desire to glorify the Father was stronger than any desire for self-preservation or the desire to avoid pain. Remember, he was God in human form, but he was also human. So he understood our temptation for self-preservation. But his motive to glorify the Father was the strongest and overcame all of that. Now, at the Last Supper, Satan came and personally entered Judas. And Judas got up and left. And then Jesus could have said, mm, what a bummer. Now the Son of Man is betrayed. Now the Son of Man is falsely accused, wrongly arrested, forsaken by all his friends. Now the Son of Man is denied by one of his closest associates. Now the Son of Man is rejected by his own nation. Now the Son of Man is blasphemed, tortured, and crucified. But Jesus didn't say any of that when Satan entered Judas and he went out to begin the, the, uh, the betrayal and, uh, uh, and the rest and the torture and all that, here's what Jesus said. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now that statement contains marvelous truth. You see, if God is glorified in your life, God will glorify you in himself, and it's really all you need to concentrate on. See, Jesus wasn't worried about all the stuff that was going to happen. He just knew God's glorified in me. Now, one time he said, you remember Martha wanted Mary to get up and help make the lunch? And uh, Jesus was teaching, and she was sitting at his feet, and, and uh, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but really only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that one thing, and it won't be taken away from her. So, you know, God likes to just simplify things for us. You can worry and fret about how you're going to get through all the trouble of the coming days, but instead you ought to just be concentrating on if God is glorified in my life. And God's going to glorify me in himself. He's going to help me overcome it all. God's going to take care of all the rest. Now, aren't most people wondering, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What's going to happen to the economy? Where are we going to get toilet paper? <laughs> now, Jesus faced the biggest problem ever. 
All right, I believe that every demon from Africa, South America, North America, Siberia, Europe, and Asia had all been summoned by Satan to Jerusalem to take down the Son of God. And they'd driven that crowd into a persecution, madness, and frenzy, and spiritual blindness so much that they cried out for Barabbas, a murderer, to be released, but screamed about Jesus, crucify him. Now, on top of all that, Jesus was about to bear the sins of the whole world on his shoulders. And so in Isaiah, years, hundreds of years before, it was prophesied, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Jesus didn't worry or fret. He just held on to these prayers. Father, glorify your name and the prayer, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And he held on to this security. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. And of course, the father did raise Jesus from the dead and gave him the name above every name. And he's seated at the right hand of the father. So I urge you, friend, make that your prayer. Uh, Father, glorify your name. Glorify me that I may glorify you. Uh, and make it your security. If God is glorified in me, you know, God will glorify me in himself. Make it your prayer. Make it your security. Now, Jesus is resurrected at the right hand of the Father, and he is ready to hear and answer our prayers, and he still has that motive in his heart. And so he said, uh, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 14. He also said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, meaning the fruit of answered prayer, and showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, the apostle James wrote, uh, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. But you needn't worry about having wrong motives in prayer, uh, all you have to do is have the right motive. And the right motive just wants to bring glory to God. It wants prayers to be answered so that He will be glorified. And then, of course, that motive is just like a key that opens the great door in prayer. Now, my fifth point, Jesus was motivated by great love for people. And this is a mystery. You know, it makes sense that Jesus would love the Father. Father's perfect. But how about His love for sinners? In Ephesians 3.9, it says uh, that we can know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, it goes way beyond any kind of sense, common sense. The love Jesus has for us far surpasses anything that makes sense to us. Why did God love the son of Sam, David Berkowitz? Well, it doesn't make sense, but God knew what he could become. And God knows what you can become. And he loves you. Now, the Amplified says in John 13... It says, now before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that it was time for him to leave this world and return to the Father. Having greatly loved his own who are in the world, he loved them and continuously loves them with his perfect love to the end eternally. Well, he loved his own, but he also loves all the sinners. He died for the whole world. And Paul wrote, but God clearly shows and proves his love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Now, Jesus wants us to love our enemies. He wants us to love those who don't love us. And so, you see, he wants that same motive that died for sinners to be in us. So he said, uh, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him, turn to them the other also. If uh, someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, we can ask God to give us the kind of love that loves those who are hurting us, the kind of love Jesus has for sinners. And that doesn't mean that he wants you to be a victim of constant abuse or anything like that, but he wants you to be able to love people even if they're not doing a good job of loving you. And he wants us to have love that goes far beyond this common love of the world where people only love those who love them. Now, I believe that it's impossible to get that kind of love through self-help or psychology or self-righteousness. We simply have to ask God to put it in our heart. Now, I want to read a, a prophetic word from a book uh, called Visions Beyond the Veil that was published in 1973 by H.A. Baker. And uh, he was a missionary to China, and he wrote about a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a group of orphan children that they were taking care of. And these kids uh, saw visions of heaven and of hell and of the future, just like the book of Revelation. And they hadn't been taught that book. They didn't know anything about it, but they saw those things. Now he writes, One night the power of the Lord was present in an unusual manner. Heaven seemed not far away. Then it was that our one little friendless beggar boy seemed to leave this filthy earth and to be caught up to heaven. Ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus, he fell prostrate at his feet in humble adoration and worship. As a matter of fact, the boy lay prostrate in the middle of the room, surrounded by his companions who sat about him on the floor, listening intently to a message that came through him from the Lord. Such gripping, heart-searching words I have never heard. While the boy sobbed and wept with deepest grief, the message was given a sentence or two at a time in a clear, strong voice. The language came in rhythm. The choice of words was the simplest and purest. The intonation of the voice and the choice of language, the penetrating power of every word was such that no person who heard could ever doubt this little simple-minded Samuel was speaking by direct supernatural inspiration of God. Prostrated in vision at the feet of Jesus, the boy said, Lord Jesus, I'm not worthy to be here or to be saved at all. I'm only a little street beggar. 
Then Jesus addressed the boy. The boy did not know it at the time, but the Lord actually spoke through the boy as a mouthpiece using the first person and addressing us and the children sitting about him. And here is the thus saith the Lord that we wish might grip the hearts, your hearts as it grips our own. Jesus is speaking to the little boy. I weep tonight. I am heartbroken. I am in deep sorrow because those who believe in me are so very few. I planned and prepared heaven for everyone, having made room for all the people in all the world. I made the new Jerusalem in three great cities, one above the other, with plenty of space for all men. Now, I'm going to pause right here. And most people never heard of anything like this. But see, the Bible in Revelation says that the heavenly city measures uh, 1,500 miles one way, 1,500 miles another way, and is 1,500 miles tall. So it's either in the shape of a cube or a, or a pyramid, the only way it could be that way. But then it says that instead of, it's, it's like built in a square, but yet it has 12 foundations. Well, there'd only be four foundations if it was just all one level. But if it was three levels, then it could have uh, four on the first level, four more on the second, and four more on the third. And so it's not crazy when you hear that, that uh, Jesus is saying to this little boy, I made plenty of room for everybody, three great cities, one above the other. All right, now... Uh, and I believe personally that it's shaped like the pyramid because the Bible talks so much about the mountain of the Lord. I believe it looks kind of like a huge mountain. Now, Jesus is continuing, but men will not believe me. Those who believe are so very few. I am sad, so very sad. This message was given between heart-rending sobs and floods of tears from the boy. Since men will not believe me, I must destroy the wicked earth. I plan to visit it with three great calamities, but it is so wicked that I've added a fourth. If you have any friends, tell them to repent quickly. Persuade all men as rapidly as possible to believe the gospel. But if the people will not listen and will not accept your message, the responsibility will not be upon you. Receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you will tarry and believe, I will baptize you. The devil deceives you by making you think you will not receive the baptism, but wait and seek, and I will baptize you and give you power to cast out devils and to heal the sick. Those who receive the seal of the Holy Spirit are to preach and testify, and I will be with you to help you and protect you in times of danger. But if you think perhaps that you will not get to heaven, that thought is of the devil. I will not destroy my own children. I will protect and save every one. Not one of mine will perish. I will overcome. Pray for Mr. and Mrs. Baker, and I will give them power to cast out devils and to heal the sick. The children in the home should obey. Do not fight. Do not lie. Live at peace. When you pray, pray from the heart. Do not let your love grow cold. Tell other churches they too should seek the Holy Spirit. All churches must press forward. The devil is coming to earth in a few years and there will be great tribulation. Do not worry. I will protect and care for you. People everywhere will gather together and fight in one place after which I will come to punish the earth. You must not fear for those who believe in me will be caught up to blow trumpets and to play harps. 
I will destroy two of every three. When I come, everything must obey my voice. Houses will tumble down, mountains will fall, trees will be destroyed. There will be utter destruction where I will not leave one blade of grass. Those who worship idols will perish. All sorcerers and spiritist mediums will be cast into hell. Only those who believe the gospel will be saved. And that's the end of the message. Now the message complete, the little boy arose and told us that he had been at the feet of Jesus. <clears throat> he did not know that the Lord had spoken through him as well as to him in the first person. And so he repeated the prophecy saying, Jesus said that, Jesus said this, and the prophecy had already been heard and already been written down. And he repeated it word for word by memory. And so Mr. Baker wrote that it was... Uh, uh, it made it easy to see how in the days of old the prophets spoke as moved by God and how a scribe might record every word as it came from the lips of the prophet or how the prophet himself could record his own messages truly saying, thus says the Lord. And if you can get a copy of that book, it's called Visions Beyond the Veil, Whitaker House Publishing. That's a wonderful, wonderful book. Now, God wants to fill us with this love for people so that we'll tell them, lead them to Christ, heal them, cast the devil out of them if necessary, and go to the ends of the earth to find them. Now, this love will cause us to pray earnestly for the people of the earth who even now are perishing without Christ. Remember, dying of a disease is not the worst thing. Dying without Christ is the horrible thing. And we must receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and act responsibly. We have a great, great responsibility to witness to the lost and dying. And God wants to give us this searching, seeking love that pleads with people, come to Christ. Now, just think of the most despicable person you can think of. And when that, someone says that to me, I think of political people uh, that I call political pirates. They're greedy, they're slanderers, they're liars. And uh, they can do more robbery in the political arena with trillions of dollars than any bank robber ever could. And yet Jesus made a place in heaven for them, and he wants them to be with him. So perhaps even they, like the son of Sam, the serial killer, will repent and be saved. And so, love your enemies. We want to be filled with love for the Father so that we want to glorify His name, but we want to be filled with love for people, love for the lost, love for everyone, and have these great motivations of the heart of Christ live in us. That That's what caused Him to die for sinners, and it will cause us to go to the sinners and tell them how to be saved. Now, my sixth point, Jesus was and is motivated by hatred for evil. Romans 12, 9 says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now the world, you know, the devil uh, twists all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, you hear so much about hate speech. and the, Well, you want to hate what is evil. You want to love what is good. See, somebody will say, well, we need to be tolerant. Well, be careful there. You want to tolerate God, but you don't want to tolerate the devil. All right. And in the same way, then we have to love what is, uh, you know, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So if we truly love God's people, we will hate what destroys people. Now, we don't hate the people, 
but we hate the evil that destroys people. And so uh, Jesus said, for the, or the Bible says about Jesus, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, one of the things I hate is secular uh, leadership training that is fed to pastors and leaves out the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So uh, that, I really don't like that stuff. And uh, I wrote a book called Good and Faithful Servant. I've just about got it ready to come out from the publishers. And a prophetic lady heard me speak that message and and she prophesied to me that it would be a sharp two-edged sword that would divide asunder body, soul, and spirit and joints from marrow. And she said anything they need to be divided from past knowledge and misunderstanding and wrong teaching, that uh, that book is going to come and just slice and dice it. <laughs> well, see, we want to build people up, but we want to destroy uh, like Paul said, we demolish arguments and pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, in other words, we don't blow up buildings with our hatred of evil. We don't go blow up abortion clinics, but we can blow up the lies that hold people in bondage. We can destroy the arguments. Now, for instance, you should hate sexual slavery when people are sold into that, or the perversion of children, or the evils of abortion, or uh, hate uh, when people are being destroyed by famine and starving to death. Mothers against drunk drivers, what are they? They're motivated by love for their children that they want to guard, or love for ones they lost, but what do they hate? They hate the lax penalties, the lax laws that allow drunk drivers to keep getting arrested and released and and keep driving until they kill some innocent person. Now, you might hate homelessness. What am I saying? I'm saying there's a lot of different wrongs and many different causes. And Christ's motivation, see, we ought to all want to bring people to Jesus, but then we have individual areas of injustice where God will direct us on different missions. You're not all going to write a book about uh, spiritual leadership. Uh, not everybody's going to work with young mothers to uh, keep them from getting uh, abortions. There's just too much to do. So God has a vision for you, and uh, he will give you love for the Father, love for people, and hatred of evil. But that hatred of evil might be more focused in one area than another, and that would be your individual uh, vision that God would give to you. Now, my seventh and last point is don't just wish for the old normal to return. I, I don't see how the old normal can possibly return. It feels like the world has lurched closer to the final cataclysms revealed in the book of Revelation. I believe we should all long to be used of God, long to be filled with this love, and long to bring glory to Him and be pleasing to Him, long for His fellowship, long to be with Him. Now remember, in this book was published in 1973, The Visions Beyond the Veil, and so Christ said at that time, through that little beggar boy, all churches must press forward. Well, that certainly applies today, doesn't it? And Paul wrote, Brother, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if at some point you think differently, God, too, that too God will make clear to you, Philippians chapter 4. Now I want to, so press on. 
press ahead. Now, I want to read a little bit from a book called The Trump Prophecies by Mark Taylor. And this man was shown that Donald Trump was going to be president. And he was told that by, by God prophetically uh, clear back in 2012, four years before Donald Trump even announced that he was going to run. And uh, now I want to say that a prophet can be used and God can speak through them, and then they can go off and speak on their own and say something that's kooky. So if I quote something from him and tell you that I believe it's a true prophecy, that doesn't mean that I uh, believe that everything Mark Taylor speaks or writes is necessarily accurate. You'd have to check it all out. I heard him do an interview on uh, YouTube, I believe, and I thought he was saying some kind of strange things that sounded a little kooky. But uh, the book, uh, The Trump Prophecies, is quite amazing. And uh, these have been coming true right down the line. So uh, here's a prophetic word written January 28, 2016. The Spirit of God says there is an army arising from the dust and ashes from many battles and enemy clashes. This army that's arising is coming in my glory and light, and the battle that's about to unfold shall put the enemy to flight. For my army is about to hit the beaches and shores of every country and nation afar, and they shall drive back the army of darkness at the sound of my shofar. For my army will be young and old and will save over one billion souls. The Spirit of God says there is nothing that the enemy can do to stop this that I, the Lord, have started, for it is now the time for the army of darkness to be departed. For the souls of this nation and all over the world are crying out to me, my army, bring them in, and I will save, deliver, and comfort thee. Arise, army of God, arise. Your work is not complete, for the kingdom of darkness is in for its biggest defeat. So the prophecy that there'd be a worldwide revival. Now, for years, I've been thinking, you know, before the great cataclysms of the book of Revelations happens, and it says that one-fourth of the world be killed, and then one-third of the world we killed, and then there's so many other uh, destructions that doesn't really say how many will die, but... Uh, I tell the Lord, Lord, it wouldn't be right to let that happen unless there's a massive worldwide revival first. And that's what God is speaking through Mark Taylor, that there is going to be a great worldwide revival. Now, I'm 70. I'm glad he said, for my army will be young and old. See, I want to be a participant. I want to be a major player in it. I hope you do too. Now, Mark Taylor also prophesied that America is going to be a key player in the end-time harvest, and he wrote this, America is going to be central when this victory is achieved for the spiritually oppressed people across the earth. So, this is where the church must be ready to be effective right now. He also prophesied President Trump would win a second term and appoint three more Supreme Court justices. And uh, strangely, uh, when that book was published several years ago, he said that gasoline was going to go down to a dollar a gallon or under a dollar a gallon. And uh, a few days ago, I saw in the Drudge Report a picture of a gas station in Ohio selling unleaded gas for 99 cents a gallon. <laughs> I had never, I, you know, I, when I read that in his book, I thought, well, you're a bold guy to, uh, you know, to prophesy that. That's a, that could really blow up on you and make you look like a false prophet. But here it's happening, which gives credence to these other prophecies. Now, uh, 
I'm not trying to establish the credibility of, of Mark Taylor or even that President Trump will be reelected. That's my focus is on the prophetic word that there will be a revival and over one billion souls will be saved. See, that's what I believe is going to happen when the chute is opened. And the, like in Malachi 4, and the calves were going to go out jumping and leaping, rejoicing. The Son of Righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings. And friend, we got to use this time to get ready for it and uh, believe that the greatest revival in the history of mankind is just about upon us. Do your best to get ready. Now, I've also been praying that President Trump would become, as it were, Pastor Trump. I'm praying that God will make him a shepherd to all the nations of the world. And already he's, you know, talking about helping other nations and uh, sending medical equipment and things. So I want you just to pray that God will give him a great love for people all over the world and that America would be used to help people in the world physically and that the church would be used to help them spiritually. Now, I'm closing now, and that is don't waste this downtime. That's what I sense God urging us. I urge, I sense the urging of God saying to us, do not waste this downtime. Now, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 10.10, if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Imagine if a logger was in this shutdown and had to take two or three months just stay in his cabin, and all he could do is sharpen axes and saws in the downtime. Man, when, when the downtime was over, he'd be ready to go. His axe would be really, really sharp. Now, similarly, we need to sharpen our spiritual axe. Draw close to the Lord. Ask God to fill you with the heart motivations of Jesus, the ones that propelled him to victory over all the forces of evil, over death, over all the world system of sin. Anticipate this gate being opened and see the word of the Lord fulfilled where God will come with healing in his wings. Visualize that. Desire to be among that company that will leap out of the gate with joy and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now let's pray. Father, we, we really want to seek your kingdom first and your righteousness because you said then you'd add all these things to us. So we know that uh, we don't have to worry about that. We need to just concentrate on your righteous heart motives. I'm asking you to fill our hearts with a passionate love for the Father so we want to glorify you in all things at all times. And give us your great love. Let us feel what you feel for people so that we won't just ignore them or just want to live our little private lives, but we'd want to help them find Jesus and be bold enough to share our faith with them. Then we pray you'll give us a hatred for all that destroys the lives of people and show us our individual missions as to what part of the injustice we might be used to change. Thank you for listening to our prayer. Now wrap your arms around every person. Comfort them and help them know everything is going to work out according to your plan and give them a new expectation. Help us all press in and, uh, and, and just give ourselves over completely to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friend, I hope you got a lot out of that. And uh, uh, I love you. God bless you. 
If you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com. Or you can write P.O. Box 485, Cresswell, Oregon, 97426.